aficionado and she's going to talk about both of those things in this interview. She's actually going to talk a little bit about how those things are interrelated for her and uh, to me that's one of the most interesting parts of this interview is thinking about uh, sex work which is so often pushed to the margins and understood as something really taboo is having a lot to do with the representation of femmes in particular in pop culture. Yeah, and you're going to hear some stuff that I think is really interesting about how she negotiates her femme identity within the context of her job as a sex worker, where she is often interfacing with male clientele and how her femme presentation for them is not exactly the same as her femme presentation for anybody else. And that's really interesting. Um yeah, so let's let her uh, tell you all about it, and we'll be back. So we're here today chatting with Maggie McMuffin, who is a burlesque performer, sex worker, and weirdo clown person. <laughs> Maggie, would you tell us about your pronouns and how you identify with the term femme? Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and for femme, it just means that I get to take typically feminine, super hyper girly things or really like bombshell sexy things and take them for me and outside of the straight heteronormative male gaze. Um, femme was actually discovering that I was femme and discovering femme was really integral to me going, oh, I'm really queer. <laughs> <laughs> when did you make that discovery? It was my senior year of college, which was years after I'd started sleeping with women. And I remember that Tumblr had introduced me to the term femme and like butch femme identities. And I was reading like all this discourse and I had spent like all of college and most of high school and the last two years of middle school being like, oh, I can't be queer because X, Y, and Z. And part of that was I don't like... I don't look like the queers I've seen on television. I don't look gay. I have, I really love my long hair. And then I started finding out all the different ways that femininity could be explored. And one, and one day it just clicked as I was like walking through campus in high heels and a push-up bra and like my waist cinched in super tiny and like lime green eyeshadow. I was just like, man, femme is really, really interesting but it's a queer identity. It would be wrong for me, a straight girl, to identify that way. Oh my god, if I actually start admitting that I'm queer, I can identify as femme, a word that has meant more to me than almost any other word that I've ever come across. Yeah, I'm queer. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so what's funny to me about that and some of the questions that we're asking other people uh, come from this sort of question set uh, you first heard these terms on the internet. Yes. Okay. So there was nobody in your immediate uh, queer or lesbian circles in college even, which we all joke is a lesbian breeding ground, right? Like gay till graduation is the joke. Um, and so you'd never heard those terms used uh, around your peers. I'd use, I'd heard the term butch before, but I had, I don't think I'd ever really heard the term femme, at least in no way that made it stand out to me. 
it was very offhand. I had heard lipstick lesbian before, but never femme. And how did you encounter it on the internet? What was the context? The context was actually a lot of sex workers. Um, I was following a lot of sex workers on Tumblr who were also identified as queer. And they were talking about being femme and like struggling with feminine visibility and femme erasure and the differing forms of femininity that they used when they were working um, and appealing to straight male clients versus when they were just going about their daily lives. And also femmes responding to sexual harassment and the patriarchy and rape culture. This was also around the time that I learned the term misandry. Hmm. Um, so it was very, it was very connected to that as well. Can we do a quick explanatory comma in uh, case our listeners don't know what misandry yes. is? Yeah. What is that? Misandry is okay. The history of misandry on the internet is very interesting. And I wrote an essay about it once. Misandry is a, made up, I'm doing finger quotes, um, is a made up rebuttal to misogyny. It's basically the, the sexist version of reverse racism. It doesn't exist. It doesn't really exist. It exists. It is an oppressed class reacting with valid and justified mistrust and anger at the oppressive class. In this case, women towards men. So this is a thing that dudes have made up to say but women are being mean to us and we're oppressed. Yes, they made it up and then women on the internet went, no, went, oh yeah, fine, we hate you. Yeah, we're gonna like have switchblades that are rainbow colored and like lipstick that's secretly mace and like all this stuff. And then the men, not getting that satire, went, see, see, look at all this proof. They're basically telling us this. And then the women just threw up their hands and went, God, I actually do fucking hate you sometimes. So... Yeah, fine, whatever. You can say I'm a misandrist if it makes you leave me the fuck alone. So femme is connected to that somehow for you. Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, so, um, who are your femme icons that you look up to? Um, are we talking about fictional or not fictional first? Uh, both. Okay. <laughs> so, Since we're talking about pop culture. I brought, I brought a list of... Um, all of the non-fictional people are people who I know identify as queer on some level. I don't know if they identify as femme. The trouble with fictional characters is I do very strongly believe that femme is a queer identity, so I feel weird um, assigning it to straight or coded straight um, characters. But at the same time, they're a wealth of inspiration. Hmm. So, um I'm sorry. Anyone who's watching Riverdale is going to want to cover their ears right now because this is a very recent spoiler. Um, aside from Tony Topaz, we also have the newly out Cheryl Blossom. And I am just praying for them to get together and cause all sorts of um, all sorts of femme dreams because Cheryl Blossom is chaotic evil, but she's also she is just such such a wonder. And her fucking funeral attire for her brother's funeral. So I'm like, yes, this is femme. Fuck your family over. Say fuck you to your abusive parents' feelings through your outfit. That is femme. Other than um, other than that, America Chavez, um, Peg Bundy is a really obvious one because I used to have red hair and like make it up really big and wear tons of leopard print. I don't. Oh God, I know so few so few white femmes who are not like Elvira is my girl. Because Elvira is amazing. Um, but for me, I, I thought back and I was like, no, my like, my like number one 
like my femme root is Nanny Fine, is Fran Drescher. Huh. Fran Drescher. Wow. Yeah. Please tell us more Say about more. Fran Drescher. <laughs> um, I watched The Nanny a lot when I was like six to nine, just like syndicated on TV. And I, I, I think it was one of the first live action shows I ever watched as a kid. Um, that wasn't specifically made for children. There was just something about how she stuck out and was just, I mean, people make fun of Fran Drescher for her voice and her laugh, which again is partially an affectation. Like Fran Drescher does have a nasally voice, but she amps it up for Nanny Fine. And it's, I found it so lovable. And I think that part of the reason I grasped onto this live action person coming from like a very heavy cartoon background as a child was she basically was a cartoon character. And so all of these like Disney princesses and, and Daphne and Velma and Scooby-Doo and Josie and the Pussycats, I was like, Oh, you don't have to be a cartoon to be that cool. And I distinctly remember when I was like eight, I saw an episode where she goes out onto a ledge in like stiletto heels And someone says, ma'am, you need to take your shoes off. You're going to fall. And she just goes, no, that will wildly throw off my balance. (laughs) And I was like, oh. So it was also like her fashion was an extension of her. No one was dressing her up. She got all of these different outfits because she was a real person and not animated on a shoestring budget. And she had like, she had big hair and big makeup and she went after the men that she wanted to go after. And she was also warm and loving. And she just represented that you could have it all to me when I was, like, seven years old. So I hear a few things in there that might speak to how femme is defined for you. So one thing I'm hearing is that there is a style component to it. Another thing I'm hearing is warmth, love, emotionality. And then a third thing that I'm hearing there is going for what you want. Are those the kinds of traits that you look for in pop culture characters who identify as femme? Are those the kinds of traits that you look for in real life that you like seeing in femmes or you think are related to femme in real life? I think so. I hadn't actually thought about that up until now, but looking over my list and even the names that I didn't say, I think that's accurate. Um, I, yeah, I, I like watching people go after what they want. I like people who are ambitious and it doesn't even have to be like a great grand goal. It could just be like living in the moment and being like, I want to drink this tea. I want to eat this cookie. I want to go for that walk regardless of what's happening. People who like femmes who dress up, even though they're just going to a barbecue and people are like, well, who are you dressing up for? And they're like, I'm dressing up for me because I like how I look in this dress and I want it to look this way today, which also ties into the style component. I, don't so much care if like people are looking like they spent an hour getting ready. Um, I just like looking and being like, oh, that person deliberately chose those things for themselves. Even if it's a pair of sweatpants. Like I have seen people walk around in like sweatpants and an oversized sweater and like a billion scarves on. And it's clear that they did that themselves because that is how they wanted to look. And I think that's where an admirable style comes from. Mm-hmm. So it's a difference between... Uh, intention and laziness, right? The idea is that if the intention is to look uh, a bit casual, that it's still kind of clear that it was put together as opposed to just pulled off the floor. Yeah, or just 
pulled out of a catalog even because yeah. some people I have seen be really stylish just by pulling something off the floor but their entire wardrobe is full of like these fabulous items so yeah. they just always look good no That's matter what I feel about Rihanna she can wear something that came off the floor God, or is Rihanna. a literal trash bag yep but see I feel like Rihanna would wear a trash bag intentionally I know she would like she would just be like I want to wear a trash bag today and she would pull it out from under her sink and put it on and it would be like oh my god now we all need to wear trash bags because god Brianna is just so good I know she's great we don't deserve her <laughs> she's <laughs> so part of the the style component I want to ask in reference to your work earlier you had mentioned in Following sex worker blogs, that a lot of that conversation of how you became aware of femme was in the way that sex workers would talk about their presentation toward their male clients and uh, the way they wanted to present in non-heteronormative or male gaze type controlled circumstances. Can you say a little bit for our listeners about how that might have influenced your personal style or your style as a sex worker and performer? Um, yes. So I became a sex worker um, professionally about a month after I graduated from college. I was unemployed. I won amateur night at a strip club. I was offered a job and I've been doing sex work ever since. And I was identifying as femme at the time I was already out as queer and a very proud femme and already experiencing um, what it was like to be femme in Montana, which is very different because in areas like that, masculine leaning style is just kind of the default for everyone, regardless of their identity or orientation. So I, when I started, I had like a shaggy, like Courtney Love Joan Jett haircut and had just learned to fill in my eyebrows, and by fill in my eyebrows, I mean I would, like, draw a single pencil line of my eyebrow. <laughs> I've seen pictures of me as a baby stripper, and I'm like, oh, that's not how you eyebrow. But <laughs> I was dancing under lights, and I liked wearing makeup. I liked very, wearing very outlandish makeup, um, partially because I had been exploring it, like, being on stage and doing cabaret performance, and I had just started doing burlesque. But... You know, when I started sec being a sex worker, I had men telling me, like, oh, I don't like how much makeup you're wearing. Um, I would have people, I would have, like, men at parties and stuff be like, oh, you'd be really pretty if you don't wear all that makeup. And I was like, I'm literally just wearing, like, hot pink lipstick. And I would make, I would make my hair big. I would, like, um, I put on my dating profile that I wanted to look like a cartoon character. And I would have people message me just to be like, well, don't you think that that makes you shallow? And I was like... No, I think it makes me someone who knows what I want to look like. And then they would, like, never respond to me again. I got more negging comments about that one line in my OkCupid profile when I was 22 than I did anything else. It was, like, overwhelming people just coming to, like, shit on me for being, like, I really care about visuals and being an aesthetic treasure. Um, and they'd just be like, well, that just makes you a stupid bitch. Huh. So being aesthetically prominent is something that we have been hearing in the conversations we're having about what it means to be femme. And this is one of the ways in which it seems distinct from just saying, oh, that is a person who presents as feminine. So like femme is a little bit extra. And that story you just told seems like because it is so extra and in your face that that makes it the thing that takes it away from the male gaze or the traditional notion of femininity. Yes. 
because it's not for you. People, there is something to be said about like if we lived in a non-capitalist society that didn't sell us makeup from birth, um, as people who are raised to be women, would we gravitate towards it? I think that there is totally a justifiable argument there, um, but I think that there is also something to be said for makeup is paint for your face. Sometimes, like, I can't paint a face, but I can paint my face. Um, but if you wear makeup, men are going to think it's for them. And there are tons of stories of people being like, I'm wearing the no makeup look. And men are like, oh, you look so great. And then they actually wear no makeup and men are like, you look sick today. Are you tired? Which I have also experienced. And... Within sex work, like, there's my my real girl face. And I did a piece a couple of times about how I didn't like when people referred to my burlesque face or my everyday face. It's like, oh, you're doing drag? Because I was like, this is not me performing my gender. This is me just looking how I want to look. I Part of the reason I like looking, I like being a clown is because I like doing those big faces and clowning is an arena in which it is acceptable and encouraged to make your face as big as possible. Going to work for men who are like, I want like a fantasy woman, but she has to be like also realistic and smart and down to earth and attainable. And she can't look too high maintenance because if she looks like she's spending too much time on herself, I look like I'm just looking for a trophy wife gold digger or something. And that's going to reflect on me. And it's this whole thing that becomes about men's feelings so when I'm going to work, I'm usually like, okay, like very light, natural eyebrows. I usually don't wear foundation. I don't wear blush or contour or anything like that. I'll wear like a lip stain that's very lightly colored um, and like just a little bit of contouring around my eyes, just like in the crease to bring them out, some eyeliner and some mascara, and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And if I wear more than that, I usually have... I usually don't get good responses because I'm not being natural enough. I'm trying to hide something. So the performance stuff that you do as in burlesque and in clown, that's where you actually get to be femme. Yeah. Or in everyday life. Or in everyday life. But at work, you are, even though you are working predominantly for male clients, that is a place where being femme is less welcome. It's true. So you told us earlier about some of your favorite pop culture femme characters, and I noticed that many of them were cartoons. Yes. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about why cartoon femmes? Is that the place in pop culture where you think femme is most accurately represented? I think it might be. I feel A lot of the live-action femmes that I thought of, they are... They're not femmes who are even coded subtextually as queer. They are like straight women who are are too hungry or who are cartoonish. Elvira is cartoonish. Peg Bundy is cartoonish. Even Kelly Bundy is also cartoonish. Um, Cheryl Blossom, based she, on an actual cartoon. That's true. So cartoonish. Yeah. But I think that in cartoons, because it's already removed from like real life, and we're already thinking, it, working with characters who are two-dimensional, that we can expound on them um, visually. Also, most cartoons are meant to appeal to children. They're meant to be merchandise, so you go bigger on, like, bright colors and really defined shapes. 
And since you don't have to have pay someone to make outlandish costumes, even though animation is not exactly the most cost-effective alternative, you can go a little bit crazier. You don't have to worry about, like, would Starfire's costume fall off of her when she's flying through the air? I mean, if it's that slingshot, the answer is yes. But I mean, the point is, you don't have to care. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to care. You don't have to care about the fact that Supergirl's miniskirt is going to, like, go up whenever she's trying to land. In a cartoon, that doesn't matter. Physics have no bearing on the world of cartoons. Femmes so yeah. defy physics. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the characters that you describe who are live-action characters who are more cartoonish, your Peg Bundys, your, um, your Fran Drescher types, uh, they seem to have also a particular style that they have in common, right? So they're these characters with the big hair, the big makeup, the tight clothes. Yes. Um, What is it about that type of femme that speaks so much to you? I think the interesting thing about tight clothes is it's a way to show off your body without showing skin. Uh, There's actually another one of my femme icons, which will come as a surprise to neither of you, is Harley Quinn, who is canonically (laughs) queer And canonically wears very feminine, but not, like, high femme outfits. And her costumes over the years, she started with with the Jester jumpsuit, which many fans pointed out is not a chaste costume. It is skin tight. And there are plenty of artists who have been like, you can see, like, every curve of her ass because male artists do that. Yeah, it just kind of goes right up in everything. Yeah, it's just like, (laughs) that doesn't look comfortable. I'm just like, I'm going to fight Batman with a wedgie shirt, which actually she would probably make cracks about. But um, Ching. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And over time, um, her costumes have gotten a lot smaller. It started with with the Arkham Asylum game with that nurse costume. Then the Suicide Squad um, reboot for the New 52 um, universe. And then with the Suicide Squad movie, which I thought that costume was perfect and was in line with Harley. But a lot of people weren't because of how much skin it showed. And so I think that the skin tight thing is the ability to show off your body without getting too much too much negative attention. Because even if you're trying to be visible... You don't necessarily want to open yourself up to that level of harassment. It also is a practical thing. It keeps you warmer. And if you have something that's like a really cool pattern or fabric or color, you get more of that fabric pattern or color without sa- without actually covering up your body with it. Um, well, something that you mentioned is like, well, male cartoonists are drawing her with, you know, a wedgie. Um, are there femme or female creators of pop culture that you look to to create the kind of characters that you want to be seeing? Oh my god, yes. There are so there are so many good female artists right there um right now. Um Rosalarian is one of them. She is a she's also a burlesque dancer. She dances under the name Florence Valabia. And I am lucky enough to um to call her my friend after like years of admiring her. Uh, Kate Leth is uh, is another artist and writer who originally was doing uh, her own her own work on Tumblr. She now writes for major major comic book studios. She works for Marvel um, and also for Boombox. Um, She's also on 
a podcast. She's on Buffering the Vampire Slayer, where she does the Buffy fashion report, which I look forward to in every episode. Kate Leth is great. She called me the sexiest Black Widow once at a comic convention, and it made my heart sing. (laughs) I would call her National Treasure, but she's Canadian. International treasure. (laughs) North American treasure, Kate Leth. Um, Babs Tarr is also... I love Babs Tarr's work. If I... I think that Babs Tarr is definitely one of those people that if I had... If I was eight years old now, her art would be the... Would be the women and people that I would be modeling myself off of as soon as I was able to buy my own clothes. Okay. So, um... (laughs) Aesthetics become a real touchstone here. And and I want to shift this back to, to queerness, right? Specifically for queer women, right? Um, how do you think... Uh, these little bits of femesthetics, which, to recast, what I'm taking from your conversation and description of femesthetics is stuff that is intentionally chosen to signal to other people what you like, what you believe in, what you take ownership of in your life. Mm. Um, how do you think those signifiers function specifically for queer women in the world? Well, I mean, historically, flagging was just a way to be like, I can't say that I'm gay, and none of us in this bar can say we're gay, even though we all are, so we're all going to wear bow ties, and that's it. And historically, there have been less ways for femmes to flag, and very frequently, the ways that femmes decide they want to flag get co-opted by straight women who are like, that's really fashionable. Are you thinking about party fingers? I'm thinking about party fingers. I'm thinking about side shaves. I'm thinking about denim vests. I'm thinking about hair flowers and bandanas were used by femmes for a brief amount of time. There are a lot of things. And it make and it makes it difficult, which is why I think, and now it's enamel pins. Queers are all about enamel pins right now. And I think that's because you can literally just get one that says, I'm gay. True. Or get one with your pronouns, which is super useful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I think pronoun um, pronoun pins are a great way to flag because they I think they started as a way for trans people to be like, these are my pronouns. Mm-hmm. Please don't ask me about them. I basically have a name tag. But I think um, trans allies and other queers are using them now to signal that they are queer mm-hmm. and also to signal like, hey, trans people, I am an ally or at least I'm performing allyship, so maybe it'll take less time for me to microaggress you. I wanted to go back to queer coding of characters and ask about queer baiting in pop culture. And Uh. if you would be willing to go down that road with us. Um, I am willing to go down this road. Um, Is it a dark and lonely road? (laughs) It's the only road that I've ever known. (laughs) Well done. Oh god, I hate queer baiting. I hate queer baiting as much as I think any queers do. I'm also frustrated with queer baiting because queer baiting is almost exclusively done with white men. Um, By white men? Also that. Supernatural. I'm just going to call you out right now. One of the many reasons I dislike Supernatural. People can like it. It's one of the reasons it's most problematic. Um, oh, so when you say... Uh, done for white men you mean oh i mean queer characters queer coding white, white male, male characters. characters queer coding white male characters you've got your okay. sherlocks got it you've got your supernaturals you've got your so many things basically any two white men like 
make eye contact and people can be like, oh, they might be gay for each other. We're going to write all the fan fiction. That doesn't happen with men of color and that doesn't happen with female characters, like hardly at all, um, which is more, I think, and misogyny within f- misogyny and racism within fandoms. But it also says something that, you know, you can't really queer bait with female characters when your show doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Mm. So it's, the presence of queer baiting also represents who is getting screen time, who is getting focus. But whenever there is queer baiting with female characters, because there is such a dearth of like good women loving women or just more femininely coded characters being into each other, when it turns out to just be like, it just feels like a joke when they're like, oh, but not really, they're just friends. They're just gals being pals. And I'm like, I will kill you. Does this exclusively happen with characters that you would say code more femme? Well, there are not really... Usually, if you see a character who is more masculine, they're going to be coded as queer anyway. But they can't be too masculine. There's a difference between the not-like-every-other-girl young adult fiction protagonist Mm -hmm. and Vasquez and Aliens. In one of them, you get that I'm not like the other girls because I'm not too feminine and girly, but I'm obviously, like, I still have long hair. I still, um, like, I still have emotions. I still do all these, like, traditionally feminine things. I'm still going to have a very wide maternal streak, which is also, um, to segue into Vasquez, you have Ellen Ripley, who was originally written to be a male character or to be genderless, depending on who you talk to. Um, And you can see in the first one, much less stereotypically feminine traits than in the sequel to Aliens. Then you have um, Vasquez, who is a Marine, who is um, Latina, who has short cropped hair and wears like a Rambo headband and it's like buff and tough and asks like, did you, do you get mistaken for a man? And so it's like, oh, Vasquez is probably a lesbian. She is being coded as more masculine and being more othered to further prove like the, the great and untouchable heroic femininity of the main character Ripley. And that's why you also get the trope Vasquez always dies, where if there's two women and one is going to die, they're going to kill the less traditionally feminine one. And then, or alternately, there is, I don't think that there's um, a parallel trope for if you have someone who is not like the other girl and then you have like the ditzy blonde, like super feminine person, that person is probably going to be mean to the main character. The ditzy blonde. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or she's going to be completely useless, which is what happens in Indiana Jones when you go from Marion to Willie. Marion is great. Marion is resourceful and useful. Willie is useless. Even though she shouldn't be useful, she got kidnapped and taken on this adventure against her consent. Why would she know how to do anything? So in pop culture, it seems that there are three positions you're outlining that women can fall into. Um... And we're not speaking necessarily of characters that we know canonically to be queer here, but characters that maybe take on some of these coded positions, especially if you've got the masculine of the more masculine of center woman who might have a traditional male job like Vasquez or Marine, right? Someone who's kind of in the middle who could be read as queer simply because of that middle positionality. And then this other hyper girly woman that we wouldn't think of as queer, but is much more feminine coded. Exactly. The more feminine someone is on TV, the more they tend to be not coded as queer. 
But at the same time, if you watch the L word, <laughs> Shane is not butch. I will die on this hill. <laughs> I think that's a fine hill to die on. I, In my memory of the L word, and of course this is relevant to talk about because uh, it's getting a reboot, and I, like most uh, young queer women, watched the L word in college with all of your gay friends. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you all really called out right now? Is yep. that true well, for you too? <laughs> um, that Shane, no, was not butch. And I, I would have never thought of Shane as butch. But, and they talk about how Shane is so masculine that gay men can think that she's a man from behind. And I'm like, that's, no. I will put in a uh, a word for Shane's behavior being very masculine. Oh, yes. yeah. Whereas yes. I don't feel like her presentation was necessarily Correct. butch. Yeah. Shane reads to me as androgynous. Right. Yeah. And, and Agreed. I think in the period of time in which that show existed, uh, female androgyny was more the thing. So one of the questions that Mariah and I kind of keep dancing around here is what has happened in our search for what does it mean to be femme? The other question that's underneath it is what has happened to the butch? And in your conversation about pop culture, it seems that that's something that's also missing. So you had a whole list of women that you've read as femme characters, even if they are not deliberately queer. There's something about them that feels right Mm -hmm. in in their queerness. But that uh, your butch characters are either dying, right, in the the bury your gaze trope. Or they're not there at all. Or they're disgusting. Mm. Right, like like Big Boo. Yeah. Right. And Leia Delaria has talked about that a lot, where she is frequently asked, like, well, when are you going to transition? And she's like, I'm not a trans man. I'm not a man. I'm butch. And I have heard from a lot of people that we talk about femme erasure within the queer community, that a lot lot of straight men are like, oh, you're wearing a dress. You must want my dick. Um, Or other people are, or queer women are like, oh, you don't look gay, so I'm going to assume that you're straight and, or you're just using me as an experimental fling. But in terms of representation, femmes are much more represented um, than than butch women are. And I wouldn't even just say butch women. I would say butch queers. We, I also can't think of many gay men who have been on TV who were not more masculine and butch unless they were like a bear in a John Waters movie. And even then, you know, they kind of talk with the lilt to let you know. So there, there's definitely not, not much better representation for butches. Do you feel that there is generally positive representation for femmes in media. And I mean, that's a broad scope, right? You've talked about comics, but we've also talked about TV and movies. So you can answer that question however you you feel fit. Um, I would say some femmes. I would say more acceptable femmes who are like, you're... You know, I'm just wearing my flannel over my skin-tight tank top and my tight skinny jeans. Oh, your Tuesday night look? Yes, my, my TV lesbian look. I was so. just looking down at my tight tank top oh. and my skinny jeans with my flannel. You are an acceptable femme, Mariah. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Mariah is wearing the uniform of the Pacific Northwest lesbian. Yep. Except for the side shave. Except for the side shave. Ah, yeah. uh, yes. Well, I'm wearing that for You've her. You've got it for me. Collectively. I'm sorry. I, sorry. I interrupted you. You were talking No, this about was great. We were having... Positive representation <laughs> of femmes. <laughs> Um, I think that there is positive representation for certain kinds of femmes, like your spunky, your spunky heroic femmes. Um, most high femmes 
do not get good re- representation. They're usually seen as conniving, bitchy, evil, antagonistic, not interested in being friends with women, which is dumb because you should want to be friends with women if you also want to date women. Um, like, Cheryl Blossom is, prob- is probably the highest femme on Riverdale. She is also the woman that I'm like, oh, Cheryl, I feel bad for you. I want to give you a therapist. Please don't come within three feet of me. Yeah, she's like a toxic high femme. She... That's also why we love Cheryl Blossom. Um, So it's a soap opera, right? Yeah. That kind of soap opera uh, character that Cheryl Blossom gets to play. uh, Or, well, the actress playing Cheryl Blossom gets to play (laughs) this kind of soap opera uh, diva queen. And that's that's the only high femme. That you think is... I mean, Veronica is... I would say that Veronica is a high femme, but, like, Veronica's hair is just a little bit less manicured. Her makeup is a little more natural. She's got pearls instead of her iconic spider brooch. Yeah. Um, so you have to look at those things. Of Even though you might have two high femmes, Cheryl, the more evil of them, is still, like, way more glam. Mm-hmm. Are there any of those stereotypes, speaking of which, that you find to be problematic or reductive? Yes. I really I really hate that butchers are seen as disgusting and femmes are seen as um as physically perfect but emotionally toxic. Hmm. Um I hate that femmes are often also the the villains femme coded um characters in general are the villains you have that with so many Disney Disney uh, villains. The femme, the femme fatale femme archetype. Fatale. Yes, the femme fatale. Like, you have the evil queen who is all drama and magic and makeup and vanity. And then you have Snow White, who is an acceptably feminine little girl, who will also just not really play any role in her story at all. And a girl, not a woman. Yeah, she's a girl. She's like 12 years old. Um, same with um, same with Cinderella. Her, her dress is like very, is, I mean, it's still a princess dress, but it's very simple. It's not covered in bows and like neon colors like the stepsisters. Um, and she doesn't, and like she just wears like her nice little servant outfit or like Belle has her very nice stuff. But then you have Ursula who was modeled after a drag queen. <laughs> Or yeah. even, or even um, for men, you have Jafar and Doctor Facilier and Scar. Mm-hmm. They are coded as more feminine, which is it's because they got good eyebrows. They do. It's they have true. amazing eyebrows. Uh, Maggie, we have one last question for you yes. before we wrap up. If you were to name this podcast, what would you name it? Cheryl. oh maggie thank you very much (laughs) you are great thank you very much i think the thing that i love the most about maggie is that she is very unapologetically a cartoon as a human being and that that is the thing that really cover colors her femme aesthetic is uh, that sort of sense of like aggrandizement that we've heard from so many of our other uh, interviewees and and how for Maggie that is cartoon femme. Yeah and it's really I love the intentionality of that and that came up a number of times of I'm doing something with the way that I look. I'm saying something with my clothes. I'm using it as a statement. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that statement is, I'm a pretty princess. And sometimes that statement is all kinds of other things. And I really, really love that. 
Yeah, and um, she has so many interesting thoughts about the way that pop culture constructs these images of femininity. And um, one thing that I think is compelling about the figures that Maggie is particularly attracted to, and this hasn't really come up too much on any of our other uh, interviews, is that a lot of the characters that she really strongly identifies with as being femme are also characters that are coded with a particular class position, right? Um, so we had the fortune of having a slight email exchange with Joe Weldon, who is the author of Fierce, the History of Leopard Print. And some of the things that Joe talks about in her book is the way that class is often signified, particularly um, a, a kind of class transcendence by wearing leopard print. And you probably heard or maybe thought of in your mind as Maggie brought up a lot of her characters. These are women who are coded as being a bit more working class or low class, often kind of doing this ascent up to higher class positions. And that's really visually signified by things like leopard print or these kinds of um, bright colors or uh, outrageous shoes. Yeah. And again, the way that these are signifiers and are useful, these are a way of telling other people what kind of space that you occupy in the world. And I think that that's also one of the ways that femme is used to subvert what is traditionally seen as feminine or other um, identities is to be able to take that and almost play with the context and say, here's what you expect based on what I look like, but that's not what you're going to get. And that makes people think. Mm -hmm. Maggie said something about um, femme being really removed from this straight heteronormative gaze. And you heard that in the way that she thinks of her femme identity for herself versus the way that a lot of her male clients as a sex worker expect her to be. And I love that sense of femme as femininity away from the male patriarchal gaze. Yeah, I think that's such a nice sentiment and and perhaps why that's a term that really coalesces in, in queer culture. Um, as you've heard in a number of the interviews over the course of this podcast inquiry so far, you know, like we've talked with a couple other people about what it means for someone who does not expressly identify as queer to say that they are femme, um, which has, of course, led us to the uh, repeated joke that we just don't know too many straight people. Not many. Um, but really, I think Maggie's comment helps us kind of relocate that term, right? Like, to be femme is to be antithetical to that male, patriarchal, heterosexual gaze. And so if you are not someone who is beholden to that, or in the case of someone who is perhaps pansexual or bisexual like me, someone who is not explicitly beholden to that, right? Then um, that is a term in which you can gather strength and locate power. So given all of this discussion about these incredible uh, people and femmes, uh, our action item here is to ask you to tell us who your femme icon is. We've been asking all of our interviewees. We've got some really fascinating responses, and we want to know who you look up to for your femme icon. So maybe that's in terms of personality. Maybe it's in terms of aesthetics. Maybe it's in terms of the way they organize family or community. Whatever that means to you, we want to know about it. It's also okay if your answer is Cheryl Blossom. Really okay. So you can tweet that to us. I'm at Stevie Costa. And I'm at TrickSwitch. Use the hashtag FemsInAction and we will be delighted to see what you come up with. Thanks for listening.
Our theme music is Arcade Montage by Lee Rosevere, which you can find on freemusicarchive.org. <laughs>